0: Tonight, what I wanted to do is I wanted to share with you a uh, an early Buddhist discourse. So there's these these collection of discourses that you find in in early Buddhism that really make up uh, kind of the beginning of this this tradition of Buddhism. And there's one that's actually quite uh, well known, at least in Buddhist circles, called the Kalama Sutta. And I want to go through with you this story because I think it it speaks to. Um, I think it really informs infor- an important, uh, important aspect of our individual exploration of a uh, spiritual path, but also informs um, uh, our collective or communal exploration of a spiritual path. And you'll see both of these things, themes come out in this, in this story. So I'm just going to dive in. Once upon a time the buddha and a whole community of his monks were traveling and they were traveling through this village called kasaputta and kasaputta was the village of a a particular people the people called the kalamas and uh, this village kasaputta was was situated in a very interesting place this this village of the kalamas it was it was situated on the edge of a forest and so what would happen is that spiritual teachers or even spiritual kind of groups would come and stay the night in their village and then go into the forest and practice. And so they would meet these different teachers as they were going into the forest to practice and then also meet other teachers as they were coming out of the forest. So they were exposed to a whole variety of different perspectives of the spiritual journey. And each time they what they said would happen is a teacher would stop by in their town. In their village and would give some kind of teaching and the the gist of the teaching was my way is the true way and all the other teachers ways are not the true way so they would glorify their own perspective and then disparage other perspectives and then when the Buddha got there the the Kalamas were saying to to the Buddha what should we do about this you know here we hear so many different perspectives about really how to live our lives or how to explore the the spiritual path who do we believe? How do we figure out the, the one to believe and to follow or the, the, the path that's really effective? And this is really what the whole story is about, is, is the Buddha's answer to this, about how to navigate such a situation. And I want to point out, you, you know, this is kind of like our situation. Have you noticed this, how much we're exposed to just in general, I mean, this is the age of information. It's amazing how much information is out there. And have you ever felt bomb- bombarded by how much information there is just on one subject? And then not only that, probably many of you, have you been exposed to different ways of meditating, different perspectives on meditation, different approaches to a spiritual path, this, this complication that we're, we're faced with in some kind of manner? And how do you figure it out for yourselves? How do you get a sense of a path to follow? How do you really figure that out for for yourself? So the Buddha begins, he basically says, No wonder you're in doubt. It is is important that you're in doubt, because this is what causes doubt when we're, we're confronted by so many different views. And then he gives the Kalamas this advice, and I find it this, this, um, this advice really striking and, and really speaks to, I think, a lot of what we're doing here on this Monday night and also the spiritual tradition. So he says, uh, Kalamas, don't go by reports, by legends, by traditions, by scripture, by logical conjecture, by inference, by analogies, by agreement through pondering views, by probability, or by the thought, this contemplative is our teacher. Instead, instead, when you know for yourselves that these qualities, these qualities being explored are unskillful or blameworthy, are qualities that are criticized by the wise, and when adopted and carried out lead to harm and to suffering, then you should abandon them. And then he says the same thing. kind of uh, repeats it, but with a, a little bit of a twist, which I also want to share with you. And then he says again, Kalamas, again, don't go by reports, by legends, by traditions, by scripture, by logical conjecture, by inference, by agreement through pondering views or even by the thought this contemplative is our teacher. Instead, when you know for yourselves that these qualities are skillful, these qualities are blameless, these qualities are praised by the wise, these qualities, when adopted and carried out, lead to welfare and to contentment, then you should enter and remain in them. I want to slow down and really take some time with this advice and see if we can parse it apart and get to get to a kind of understanding that I hope is somehow applicable to your own exploration and also uh, 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 applicable to how, what it means to be within a community of some sort. So what is the Buddha saying? What, what is he saying? How to clarify these doubts? And I I appreciate um, kind of how he frames it of the ending of what I shared with you is what you're doing in your life, is it leading to your welfare and contentment or is it leading to your misery? And that's the most important question. And so I want to point out what the question is not. And this really distinguishes this from like other spiritual traditions or other kind of religious traditions is the Buddha isn't interested in what the capital T truth is. This is not some kind of philosophical exploration. This has to do with with my lived life, with what's going on in my moment-to-moment life, and what brings actually a feeling of freedom, and what brings misery. So I want to point out the first step that the Buddha is saying is like, what's practical in your life? What works and what doesn't? So that's different than giving some kind of belief system or some kind of explanation about why we're here, or how the universe began—it's not about that. It's about where is where is my suffering lie and where is my freedom lie. And then, and then, a really interesting list, I think, of what not to go by, what not to use so much, like these uh, certain things that that are there. So not to go by reports, not to go by what just people are saying. Or even more striking, by traditions. Like this tradition that you get exposed to here, to here on Monday nights. The Buddha is saying, you shouldn't go by some kind of tradition like Buddhism. That's not the way that you're going to find freedom. Or the answer to where your freedom is or what's leading to your, your suffering or misery. Which is interesting, right? Here he is, a teacher. And he even says that. That's the last thing he says. And don't go by the thought that, oh, this is my teacher and this is what they say and I should follow them. So he's recommending not to do that. So do you hear this isn't about some kind of blind belief or having faith in some idea? Because he's saying that's not going to lead to your freedom. And then there's other things in the list that I also find really striking, which is not to go by um, logical conjecture or by inference. In other words, not to merely believe my own thought process. I know that's gotten me in so much trouble. I like to think it hasn't. I always like to think that the things I think are right and the things that other people think that I don't agree with are wrong. That's the way my mind works. But when I look back on my life, I can see that there are thought patterns and ways that I've thought that has actually led to my suffering. So it would be unwise of me just to merely believe all the thoughts that crop up in my mind or the habitual thought patterns that that crop up in my own mind. So not even relying on that. Not a good place. And maybe some of you can relate to that. It's It's not the wisest thing if I'm really curious about about freedom in that sense. And on a deeper level, I think this is uh, where some of the tangle is in our lives. I know it's in my life where really what I'm curious about learning and studying about are the things that just reaffirm my preferences and my biases. And if that's all that I, I become curious about in my life are the things that are reaffirming my biases and my preferences then what am I going to get? I'm always going to get what I've always gotten. Nothing's actually going to change. I'm just reinforcing what's already happened in my life. Reinforcing the way I am in the world. And then trying to push away the things that I don't agree with, the things that don't fit into my preferences and biases. So I want to point out that, that a spiritual path is different than just some kind of superficial affirming how I think about things or affirming what i prefer in the world cuz there's no freedom in that that's just the same old thing and then we have the turn then he gives a turn of well how do you figure this out how do you assess a path that's that's effective for you and then we have that phrase when you know for yourself, when you know for yourself that when you cultivate this quality of heart, when you cultivate kindness or compassion, when you cultivate mindfulness, when you cultivate a kind of discerning wisdom, oh, actually, this does lead to more freedom in my life. Oh, when I slow down in my life, actually, this is effective. When I take time in the morning to sit in meditation on a regular basis, oh, I realize this is effective. when I create some kind of fixed, rigid sense of who I am, oh, there's so much misery that comes from that. And so what I want to point out about, about when I know for something for myself, again, it's not a thought, it's something that I've explored, that I've tasted. So I, I want to point out that the basis of what we're doing here on a Monday night is actually to explore invest, and investigate together, not to believe together. Because what is that the Buddha is saying? That doesn't lead to anything. I actually have to taste for myself that compassion is connected with contentment. Which I want to say is kind of a leap. When I care for others, oh, caring for others and myself leads to to, to contentment. Because there can be such an habitual tendency of if I only care for myself, then I'll be content. This is a different thing. And then, then the encouragement is to check that out. Is that true or not? in your own experience. And this is repeated again and again, you find in early Buddhism, this emphasis. For example, there's this this phrase in Pali, Pali being the, the scriptural language of early Buddhism, ehi pasiko. And it's, it's these two words that describe the Dhamma or, or these teachings. And it's translated as to come and see for yourself. But you need to see this for yourself, not just to believe it or to think about it. So this is different. This is a different approach to what we're doing. It's it's based on investigation, on exploration. And this is why we it, it emphasize so much here the this idea of practice, practicing something so that I get a, a direct taste of it. And I have found this important because I I noticed that I have this mind that's been influenced, but that's been so shaped by the society that's been around it. This is so much of what the mind is. It's just a product of society. And so what comes with the, this package of the mind is sometimes what I call these counterfeit ideas of what contentment is. Have you noticed how many kinds of contentment and happiness are sold out there on the marketplace? You know. Just the certain kinds of pills you can take. (laughs) Legal and illegal. (laughs) Or if you buy this or buy that. Or if you learn this or learn that. Oh, this will lead to my contentment or happiness. If you're in this kind of relationship or that kind of relationship. Oh, then I'll have contentment and happiness. And it it can be uh, quite deep. Uh, these stories of, of, of these counterfeit senses of contentment that are out there. For example, there's been some really interesting critiques that have uh, been done around a lot of these quote-unquote happiness and well-being studies. Um, and I want to say that a lot of these critiques are coming from that field itself, which I think is a wonderful thing of, of sometimes uh, inquiry is really uh, being careful about how we uh, create, for example, research studies and what they started to see with some happiness and well-being studies, not all, there's a whole variety out there, is that the kind of the, the narrative of contentment or the framework of, of kind of the definition of, of, of contentment and happiness that started to pop out from some of these studies was basically just a kind of middle-class white lifestyle that was really in some ways quite still privileged and distant and even maybe possibly oppressive to other aspects of society, is that the happiness and contentment we're looking for? Is one of isolation, maybe of contentment because there's enough money? Is that really what contentment and happiness is about? Because if we just follow those studies, maybe that's the case. and I want to point out that this is we're we're, we're at least bringing up the question that contentment might be different than that. As I mentioned, what would it be to have a contentment that actually is infused with compassion? This, this, this interrelatedness in bringing the sense that we live in an interrelated world and to actually have a heart that responds rather than a heart that is protected and isolated in some kind of way. So yeah, we need to become curious about what truly leads to contentment and suffering in our lives and in our world. To know for yourselves what leads to contentment and what leads to suffering. And then there's another phrase which I find so interesting that sometimes gets passed over that to be cultivating things that are Praised by the wise, to abandon the things that the wise encourage us to abandon. So this is quite different. It's not just what I discover, but it's also the importance of of us relying on others that we respect to keep ourselves in check. For example, when I look at my spiritual the, the the whole unfolding of my spiritual path, so much of it has been influenced by others that I've respected or friends that I've respected. And that's been essential. Because even when I even when I have the most integrity and I feel like I'm being most honest with myself, there are still places in my life that I can be blind to. And I think this is where it's so helpful to have people I can rub up against so I can start to see these blind areas. That it's not just about my investigation, it's about entering into relationships or communities that help support this kind of exploration. I remember when, um, actually, I I first started to get interested in in Buddhism. I was uh, actually in India, and I was on this train, and I met this... English fellow who had uh, kind of spent most of his life really dedicated to a Buddhist spiritual path, and he was um, uh, actually within a, within a community of what are called the, uh, the Untouchables in India, and, and a whole huge portion of that population had converted to Buddhism in the 1950s because of this uh, luminary um, individual, I, I, Bedkar, Dr. Embedkar. But we connected and we, I think we spent probably the entire night just talking about our lives and I got to hear so much about the path through him. And it was probably two or three, three years of just this correspondence that I had with him that was so helpful to have that support early on in my spiritual practice. And I realized it wasn't just my own investigation. I needed help. As I like to, to point out, no one can tread this path for you and you can't do it alone. Right. You have to know for yourself, no one can tread the path for you, and you can't do it alone. So here's this value. Where, where do you find, individually, spiritual friends or wise companions? Who are they in your life? I think it's an important thing to reflect upon. Where can you find that? And it's tricky, right? Because every community is imperfect. People are imperfect. You can probably think of some people that maybe you listen to or read, or people in your life that have been helpful in terms of informing you about how to live your life. Where will you find it? And I want to come back to this list because I think it's there's something tricky about it, right? Here's the Buddha. He's he's saying not to follow any kind of tradition, and yet he's cultivating some kind of tradition at the same time. How to understand that. How do you relate to the various spiritual traditions that you come into contact with? And I think this is important. I think this is important when you come to the Monday night. How do you relate to what's being set up here? And it's an important question, because all kinds of things probably get set up from up front from everyone. And it might be pretty foolish just to believe it. I wouldn't want to believe everything I said. I wouldn't rec- recommend you do the same. And yet there's some kind of relationship that can be helpful for, for with, that we have with traditions. And I don't know what that's going to be for you, so I want to be really clear, because it can be so unique for each and every one of you, but I think it's an important thing to reflect upon. I know for me, and at least this early Buddhist tradition, it's been so helpful because it's a place where I found a wise companion, wise words of wisdom. It shaped my life in a way that's been so helpful. So I feel deeply indebted to this tradition, it's it's in in many ways I could say saved my life. And yet at the same time, uh, I don't believe all of it. It might not have saved my life if I believed all of it. <laughs> and I, I can see that oh, sometimes it's really wonderful either being in a community or a tradition to allow it to shape you, but also allowing yourself, yourself to shape it. Because you bring something unique to any tradition. And if I'm just blindly following a tradition, what can happen is, is I, I, it doesn't get to be shaped by my uniqueness. And this is important. It's so important just of what's being taught here on Monday night because there are so many unique things that are important to keep in mind even in just the practice of meditation. And I want to just kind of give an image of this and and point this out. Because in in some ways a spiritual path does need to be custom fit to how we're situated. Like I see this so well when I go Um, hiking with my wife. Like, a lot of times what we love to do is to go backpacking off-trail somewhere. But the thing is, especially when the brush gets really thick, her way of walking through the brush is very different than me. And a lot of it is because of our height. So she's so great at, like, going under things. I do not like going under things. I'd rather go over things. and so the 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 way we navigate the path is really quite different, and our paths look different as a result. If you were going to follow me compared to her, it's going to be a different path in some kind of way, even though we're we're headed in the same direction. We're headed to the same beautiful alpine lake that that has such a quality of of beauty and freedom to it. So what's it going to be like for you, that particular path, given how tall you are, <laughs> or whatever it, it is, is, or how you're situated? And even small things like this. I remember I was doing a a month-long retreat. It was a concentration retreat. And I remember talking to an individual, this guy, who um, for years had been with teachers that always emphasized the breath, like I do. I'll probably do that tonight. (laughs) But what he realized is, is paying attention to the breath as some kind of anchor did not work for him. It was not an appropriate anchor, and and what was the anchor that he used was hearing, which you actually might want to explore. So whenever his mind was lost in thought, instead of coming back to the breath, he'd come back to hearing. And it was the thing that completely changed his path, just that one simple thing. And it was because he had been around in a tradition that kept on telling him to pay attention to the breath, and for him it didn't work. He needed to vary that. So I want to point that out. Like, everything that's shared with you, sometimes it needs a variation because of, of... the way your system is structured. So we need both. We need community or tradition to inform us, but then we need to allow our own exploration to inform that. And then just a a few other things in this story which I find interesting. So after this list, he then asked the Kalamas some questions. Basically, um, asking him where suffering and freedom comes from is dependent upon the quality of mind that's there. He's talking about what he calls greed, hatred, delusion. The mind's, you could say it's these unskillful tendencies of the mind to kind of obsessively grasp onto experience or obsessively push experience away or just to check out. So it's kind of like being in contention with our moment-to-moment experience rather than being in harmony with it. So I want to point out where this exploration is is leading to is, is this curiosity is how does your mind relate to this moment? That so much of my freedom or the kind of freedom that we're curious about is how is the mind relating to this moment? Am I getting lost in it? Am I trying to push it away? Am I grasping onto it or am I simply being present with it? So a different kind of exploration, a real curiosity about what's going on in here. How is the mind reacting? When are the times where it's just simply being present? And then the Buddha goes on and he says, you know, when when we have a skillful relationship with this moment, which we explore in meditation, right? We're trying to open up a space for a skillful relationship. The skillful relationship is to be present with our experience. He says, the more and more the heart and mind can rest there... One is guaranteed these assurances. So I just want to share with you two of these assurances because I find them quite a striking. And the word assurance is really interesting. It's the, the Pali word is asasa, which literally means to be able to breathe easily. Isn't that a cool definition of what it really means to be free in our lives? It's just the ability to breathe easily. And I'd love just to track that in my life. When can you breathe easy in your life? When can you not? Just noticing that one thing in your life. Boy, so so interesting, so striking. And here are the assurances. He says, the first assurance a practitioner is one, when the mind and heart can breathe easily, you could say, is, is if there is another world and there is fruit and result of good and bad deeds, then it's possible with the breakup of the body after death that there'll be a good rebirth. And the second assurance that one is one is, is, if there is no rebirth, no other world, then right here in this very life, there's a sense of contentment without ill will, free of trouble. I find that interesting, because so often Buddhism is so associated with rebirth, and he's basically saying, if you want to believe in rebirth, that's great, because, because then if you believe in rebirth and you do this, then you'll have a good rebirth. And if you don't, it's still good. Your life is good here. So undermining the idea that we have to have some kind of certain belief about what happens to us after we die really trying to say you can have whatever kinds of beliefs that you want about the structure of of how life and death unfold, but still but still this the sense of the mind relating to experience differently gives us a sense of freedom so tonight for our sit we'll we'll sit in just a minute here i invite you to Once again, keep it simple. Having this sense of exploration. and A couple things to explore. One is, is you might want to explore what is a good anchor to come uh, come back to. For some of you, you might want to continue to explore being with the breath, if that's something that you commonly use. Or you might want to play around with having a different anchor, like just with hearing. Just so you're mixing it up in some kind of way. But pick one or the other. Either you're going to check out the breath to come back to or the activity of hearing. And just having that so there's a sense of exploration. What allows my mind to come back in some kind of manner? And then checking in every so often of how the mind is relating to this experience. How is it relating to that beeping? Oh, it's completely okay with it. It's coming and it's going. How is it relating to the heat? Oh, it likes it. It doesn't like it. Oh, it's just being with it. So in the midst of that, you have a sense of if the mind is fighting with this present moment or if it's okay. If the mind's wandering a lot or lost in thought a lot, how is the mind with that? Oh, it's totally bummed out. It feels like I totally suck at meditation. Interesting. Oh, it doesn't like that. Oh, it's okay. You know, it realizes that this is what the mind does at times. So those two things, what's your anchor, breath or, the, or hearing, and then checking in every so often how the mind's relating to this experience. Okay, so you might want to stand up and stretch a little bit and move around, and then we'll get going. And Jeff, could you open the door? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.